At Global Genes, we know a rare diagnosis changes everything. You weren't given a playbook on how to cope, how to take that next step, and you certainly weren't handed a blueprint on how to build an advocacy organization or successfully bring a therapy to market. The good news is that rare disease advocates are some of the most inspiring, innovative activists on the planet. And Global Genes works to bring the community together to share best practices, create important introductions, and help catalyze powerful collaborations. That's why Global Genes would like to invite you to join us for the fourth annual Rare Patient Advocacy Summit on September 24th and 25th in Huntington Beach, California. The goal of this year's summit is for patients, caregivers, and advocates to walk away equipped with actionable next steps, whether you've been recently diagnosed or building a disease community, thinking about funding early stage research, actively engaged in developing a treatment, or have been advocating in rare diseases for decades. To learn more, go to globalgenes.org forward slash 2015 summit. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is Rarecast. Bonner Paddock led an active childhood despite his physical limitations. After years of being misdiagnosed, he learned at age 11 that he had cerebral palsy, a non-progressive brain injury that affects muscle movement and coordination. Rather than accept his physical limitations, Paddock went on to become the first person with cerebral palsy to climb Mount Kilimanjaro, the tallest freestanding mountain in the world. He also went on to become an elite triathlete when he competed in the Kona Ironman. We spoke to Paddock about his story, his efforts to raise awareness and support for children with disabilities through his OM Foundation, and how he's working to empower children with disabilities to live life beyond limits. Bonner, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. We're going to discuss the work you do through your OM Foundation today, but I'd like to begin with your own story. You were born with cerebral palsy, but actually were misdiagnosed for 11 years. How did you learn you had cerebral palsy, and what was the impact it had on you? Um, we learned I had it after my brother actually got injured um, training in college, and he had to go see uh, a neurologist and everything. And through that and asking a family history, literally the doctor stumbled upon me being just misdiagnosed and us being unclear on what I had had. So it literally was something by, if my brother didn't get injured, who knows if I would have been diagnosed or when I would have got the proper diagnosis. And it was on my 11th birthday and being 11, it, it, I don't recall much, so I relied on my mom pretty much for her recollection, but it was obviously a great relief based on some of the other things that they thought it was, that obviously potentially some of them had me, you know, probably not living to 15 or 20 years old. So it was, I think, a great relief for her. And then obviously through that, I think that uh, gave a new lease on life in terms of what our hope was for me and everything else. Well, cerebral palsy can manifest itself in a, in a wide range of ways. Can you explain 
how common it is, whether there are treatments, and, and how varied the way it manifests itself can be? Yeah, it's actually, uh, unfortunately, it's very common. Autism is on the rise, which, um, you know, is kind of uh, in the same uh, category of, of uh, disability. So that being said, um, for me, it affects the lower half of my body. I have spastic diplegia, so means the lower half of my body from my lower back all the way down means I have extremely tight muscles. So my walk is very stiff and rigid uh, compared to a normal walk, and which means obviously my muscle spasm or cramp very easily and obviously tire out. So, you know, long, uh, you know, exercise periods and everything else like that are, are usually a lot more challenging for people with cerebral palsy. Most are in a wheelchair or have severe, you know, uh, challenges with walking unassisted. So I'm very fortunate. And if I understood correctly, you, you had rather athletic brothers and, you know, you you just got into the rough and tumble with them as a kid. Is that right? Yeah, both brothers. Uh, you know, one was played uh, soccer and tennis. The other was a big time swimmer, water polo player and tennis as well. So yeah, I had a had a pretty active family, and so being the youngest, you know, you just want to kind of be like your older brother, so just try to follow along the best I could. Well, you talk about a transformative moment when you had become active in a lo- local cerebral palsy organization and, and were running a half marathon where you met a friend's four-and-a-half-year-old son, Jake, who also had cerebral palsy. Can you tell us what happened and how that affected you? Yeah, they... That board um, was the kind of the first large group that I told publicly that I had it. So it was a very interesting thing. But Jake's dad happened to be on the board at the time. So he had reached out to me after that meeting and just said how much I gave hope to his son. And he kind of shared a little bit about his son and that he was four. And, you know, it was a pretty severe case. So wasn't able to walk or talk. And then running the half marathon with him that year uh, in support and helping raise, he was running a full. I was going to run the half. Got to know him really well during the time that we ran together. And unfortunately, Jakey died that night. So there was just this instant connection because he was they were so accepting to me of what I had and really embraced and, and kind of were the first ones that say I could give people hope by just sharing my own story. That's really kind of a, a huge moment in my life that it's like, wow, just for trying just for being me, I'm gonna give somebody inspiration where I was always for thirty years trying to hide that I had this. It was just such a drastic shift in, in my mindset and, and the power that maybe I can to help others was really starting to take a hold based on, you know, that initial time of meeting Jakey's dad and, and, and you know, going through the very huge tragedy of his loss. Well, you went from running a half marathon to a full marathon, and then in 2008, you decided to climb Mount Kilimanjaro, the tallest freestanding mountain. What led you to do that? <laughs> Wild, crazy idea. No, um, <laughs> it was one of those things that um, Kilimanjaro went and addressed. And I went after some of the things that were my biggest um, weaknesses, which is, you know, really no, you know, really major balance troubles. So that and then obviously, you know, over a week on a mountain with using your legs and everything else, very cold weather all the things that really kind of isolate my uh, challenges, both you know physically with cerebral palsy that I wanted to kind of say, hey, even if you go and uh, after your hardest kind of weaknesses per se or challenges, 
um, you know, you, you can overcome them if you go after them versus ignore them. And so for 30 years, I ignored them. And now I kind of went to the extreme of the other side and said, I'm not going to ignore them and I'm going to press far ahead. Luckily, nothing bad, you know, happened to me, but it was one of those things that looking back probably wasn't the smartest thing to do right out of the gate. (laughs) (laughs) Well, in 2012, you became an elite triathlete having competed in the uh, Kona Ironman. What drives you to undertake these physical challenges? Are you you trying to to show yourself something? You're trying to show others something? Yeah, I, I think there were two drastic, you know, um, uh, world records, but they were dressed very different in terms of where I was in my life and getting comfortable with who I was and, you know, believing in myself. Kilimanjaro was just starting to tell people that I had CP, so I wasn't comfortable with myself. I didn't really know who I was. I knew that I was kind of blindly heading in the right direction. So you know, Kilimanjaro was still, I hadn't dealt with a lot of, you know, my frustration and anger stuff of growing up being teased. And my parents got divorced at an early age, didn't know how to process that. So there was a lot of those things looking back that I still kept bottled up and, and kind of used that, those things as motivations to prove a lot of people wrong that, you know, weren't nice to me and everything younger. But looking at Iron Man, Iron Man was a completely different journey where I was comfortable with who I was, was com- confident in my abilities, and really had a lot of people that were loving and supportive around me. So it was a completely different environment than Kilimanjaro. And through that, I, I learned through Welchie, who is my coach at Ironman, he's the one that taught me about enjoying the journey and race your own race. And you're not trying to beat anybody else. And I wasn't, I was just trying to beat the 17 hour cutoff and it was going to be close. So I knew I was going to be one of the last place finishers. So, um, looking at things like that, it just drastically changed my outlook and understanding of what life's about, what happiness is, and just trying to, you know, worry about what I can control and not all these things in life that we just can't control. Well, after Kilimanjaro, you launched the OM Foundation. What exactly is the OM Foundation and what's its mission? Uh, we kind of have three primary missions at OM. Is One is obviously to raise awareness for kids with disabilities with cerebral palsy, autism, spina bifida, Down syndrome are, primary, are our primary ones that we really focus on. But so one, it's hopefully just to create awareness for these um, disabilities out there in the world and hopefully provide you know, inspiration to uh, those families and everything out there that there that there are people out there trying to really push the limits of what people put in that. Those of us that are have those disabilities, two is obviously um, you know really help the folks that uh, we really fell in love with in Africa, which was they have nothing there in Tanzania uh, in terms of services for a lot of the disabled people there. So. I needed to, I felt, you know, that I really wanted to do something back in Tanzania. And then third was ultimately is how do we continue to do something for, you know, physical therapy, speech therapy, and occupational therapy, which were three things that I really didn't know much about or needed. And I'd love to make those much more available to the the kids and families that can't afford it and let them know about it. Because a lot of families don't know about those importance of those things with those disabilities. And is there anything you think distinguishes the OM Foundation's approach? Yeah, the big distinguishing thing is I, I I would say there's a few. There's one is that, you know, I do have it and that I, you know, uh, fund the whole foundation out of my own pocket. So 100% of the money that we raise, we give it back to the families. So either whether it's providing services or building actual centers themselves, um, 
it's our gifts to the community. We don't run the centers. We don't do any of that. It's, it's just our way to continue to hopefully empower those families and give them the things that I wish I had growing up and that they definitely need. So, um, and in terms of anything, we don't, we don't, um, make any money off any of that. All the money we raise, we donate back into the community. So I think that's a huge difference. And, and, um, you know, that we can hopefully make everybody's dollar that goes in is going to be a dollar to the kids. So your organization seeks to empower children with disabilities and their families to live life beyond limits. There are different kinds of limits. There are actual physical limits, limits other people impose on us, and, and limits we impose on ourselves. How do you address those different types of limits, and, and what's the hardest one to address? Uh, I think the hardest one to address is obviously is the limits that we put on ourselves, because I put tremendous limits on myself for 30 you know, years, and not talking about it, not embracing who I am. I limited myself and my growth. And looking back, you can really see how much I did limit it and how much I had to grow up and, you know, mature a lot. And every day it's like that. It's trying to get a little bit better. But it truly, I think, the number one thing that limits all of us the most is, is what we what we put on ourselves. And, and that's really the main thing that's holding back everybody, including myself. And it's kind of a daily battle that we've got to know is like, you know, are you pushing yourself? Is this something, you know, that is is truly something that's just not possible? Or is it something that we're just fearful of or afraid or, you know, unsure? And that seems to be a lot of the, the yes answer is not something that we just can't do. You've written a book about your experiences, One More Step. Writing is a process that forces you to bring a certain coherence to your experience and come to terms with things and, and make sense of them. What did you learn about yourself writing the book? I would say that a lot of people look at the two physical achievements that I've done um, and always ask about, like, how do I physically feel? But I've learned that the actual emotional um, scars and the emotional damage that's happened is, is harder to recover from and harder to overcome. And so the physical challenges uh, really weren't as hard as all of the emotional uh, challenges that I either put before myself or that happened to me. But either way, it's really up to me to, you know, believe in myself and, you know, move on from those challenges. So I learned through the book process that those emotional things really were the ones that were inhibiting my happiness and growth and, you know, truly getting to it. It's amazing that going through two physical challenges like that actually were two separate journeys that taught me those lessons within going for these world records. So it's kind of a huge underlying you know, um, you know, events that happened, not just the world records, the world records are what's talked about, but it's the stuff that happened during those journeys that really put me in the, the place that I am to let go of things, forgive people and, you know, move on and, and be a lot happier. Well, what were you hoping to accomplish with the book? What, what message are you hoping to convey? Um, I hope that it would be the singular thing that no matter how long all of you know all of us are here, we never know. And so it's something that hopefully cements for the foundation and goes on that it, that it's not always the physical challenges. It's not always about comparing yourself or trying to beat other people. It's about truly the race with ourselves to continue to grow and become better each day and push our own limits and believe in ourselves. And ultimately, if you don't believe in yourself, unfortunately, that's exactly what most people don't and the limit that we put on ourselves. Once we get that out of the way, there pretty much is nothing that anybody can't do. And so 
hopefully the book shows that no matter what you got, no matter what challenges you put in front of yourself, you can make a difference, you can be happy, and you can really do whatever you want in your life. Bonner Paddock, elite triathlete, mountain climber, author, and founder of the OM Foundation. Bonner, thanks for your time today. Thank you so much for having me. If you'd like to learn more about Bonner Paddock and meet him, join Global Genes for the fourth annual Rare Patient Advocacy Summit, September 24th and 25th, in Huntington Beach, California. To learn more, go to globalgenes.org forward slash 2015 summit. Thanks for listening. For more information about rare disease and to connect to the rare disease community, go to globalgenes.org. To keep up on the latest news and trends affecting the rare disease community, be sure to visit raredaily.org. You can subscribe to the Rarecast RSS feed through raredaily.org or through SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast manager. The Rarecast is produced for Global Genes by the Levine Media Group. You can also find our podcast, The Bio Report, on these popular podcast sites. Our theme music is composed by Jonah Levine and performed by the Jonah Levine Collective. We'd love to hear from you. Drop us a note at danny at levinemediagroup.com.